This is an ABC podcast. G'day, I'm Quint Jasper and it's time for a trip around a big country. This week we're heading to the top end and visiting Kakadu National Park. It's the middle of the wet season and the landscape is lush and green, but that's not stopping rangers who are busy carrying out fuel reduction burns with the low intensity fires helping to protect the homes of wildlife. We'll meet a self-taught artist who's using his skills as an arborist, working with chainsaws to carve out unique wooden sculptures, and we'll get an introduction to the newest member of the school community at a high school in central west New South Wales, Bria the Therapy Donkey. She does love human interaction. She wants to know what's going on. As we're speaking now, we're giving her a scratch, which is really cute. She's like a big dog. She's, she's soft to touch and she's quite funny. I don't know something about a donkey that makes you laugh. The big ears they have, they're a, a great animal to have around and, and they've got such character. We'll hear about how that donkey with character is helping students and staff who've endured tough times in the wake of recent natural disasters. That's coming up. First today, we're visiting the far south coast of New South Wales, where Indigenous women are gathering for a traditional cultural camp that organisers hope will harness healing powers and improve mental health and wellbeing. Vanessa Milton has this story. As she welcomes saltwater and freshwater women to a special teaching area on Gulaga Mountain, Yuan dancer and songwoman Sharon Mason is realising a long-held dream. I had a dream many years ago to have women's camps like the old people used to, saltwater women and freshwater women. That was my vision. By doing this, we continue our song lines and our stories, and it all gets handed down to the next generation. Minga, Badu, Wangan, Ewan, welcome to Mother Mountain. It's very important that we bring our women here for healing. We do this so we stay connected, mountain to mountain, water to water, fresh water to salt water. Four generations of women and children from across coastal and inland New South Wales came together for the biggest cultural camp in living memory on the far south coast. Welcome to Mystery Bay. It's part of the Durandjan lands that are part of the Ewan Nation. It's a traditional camp and area. That's Sharon's mother, Walbunja elder Auntie Vivian Mason. I was lucky enough to grow up with a lot of the old people that's long gone and we just followed the cultural path, but not so strongly when we had children, but there was always something missing in our life, so we came back to the bush and all the memories and the stories came to life and the places that the old people talked about, we were actually there. So we really connected back to country. See the colours on the rocks? This is all the ochre Like when the water comes down over, it'll go like clay. As the ocean pounds the shore, while Bunja woman Ashwini Mason leads a tour to gather ochre from the rocky cliffs. A lot of the mob now are practising or learning and wanting to go and practise culture. So it's a pretty powerful thing, these women coming from completely different places and being so open. And bring it down. 
Sitting around the campfire, the women weave lamandra grass and stringy bark and make lifetime connections. Hey, you girls, you women, just remember you're going to have a dance and that, so while you're doing deadly weaving, think about your headpiece or your belt. Weaving, for me, it's kind of my way of storytelling. It's a process that I'm able to give to myself to be able to learn and understand the stuff that I'm actually going through. Sheridan Noble is a proud Bigham Bull and Gomoroi woman who made the 1,000-kilometre round trip from the Hunter Valley to attend the camp at Mystery Bay. From the past 200 years, our people have been conditioned so much to be hard, to be able to survive. We've been born in a world where we've had to survive. And when you think of culture, culture is a way of giving back. That was the biggest gift that we got to have from our people is that gift of sharing. Because we've never ever done it alone. When you think about it, when people go through their traumas or anything that they have in life, you can't heal on your own. You need other people to heal. We all had the same troubles in our communities, the same worries that we're concerned about. But our women are still strong. There's a big gap in my life where you didn't hear about women gathering. It was all about rallying and protesting. Our old people were frontline fighters for our land rights and to be recognised as Aboriginal people. Whereas the movement now is like the shift. The shift is happening. We still have culture and we still practise it. The difference that we've personally seen and it makes, and I've personally felt it in what country does for you. To get some people there is the hardest part of all. Some of them like, just don't want to leave the real world. And it's really hard. To, but once you get them there, they're blown away because they're finding something in themselves. Gomoroi woman Shelley O'Leary leads her own cultural camp each year with her partner Ted Fields. On Yuwalaroi country at Naran Lake, the Darawa Walai camp brings hundreds of people to the traditional meeting place each year. The healing power of these gatherings on sites of cultural significance is being documented in a University of New South Wales research project. Dr Ariati Yashadana is the study's lead researcher. The research group is called Goedi Gadada, which means from the freshwater to the saltwater. We applied for a grant under the Medical Research Future Fund scheme and through the National Health and Medical Research Council, specifically for a project looking at how cultural camps impact Aboriginal people's health and well-being. So looking at aspects of like connection to country, revitalisation and practice of languages and practice of traditional culture, so ceremony and other things. The goal is really to produce evidence that supports the running of these kinds of camps. The big question that's coming up is why isn't there more of this? Why isn't this happening like on a regular basis? We need to have this happen on other country, other nation groups. And really the reality of it is that the funding isn't there to support people to do it. It's costly to be able to get all the resources together to support people to come. There's a number of barriers. Access to land is another one. Cultural leaders or cultural knowledge holders might not have access to certain sites where they can take people. And that's a fight that continues, but it's a it's a bigger fight about land rights, but it's an important one. When all the women are together, it's so amazingly powerful and it brings out spiritual side of everyone here. 
one of the women this morning commented, you know, I could go back to my community now and stand my ground as a strong Aboriginal woman. They've just got to take that step and get back into country and their culture and what's important to them and share it with their children. Deadly girls, madness. Being in year 12, there's a lot of obviously stress and anxiety, I guess, sometimes. And like Bria just calms you down and makes you forget about everything and chill out a bit. So, yeah, it's been pretty good. Year 12 student Brianna Hanahan is one of dozens of teenagers at a high school in central west New South Wales that are benefiting from a new addition to the school community, a support donkey named Bria. Like, you'll just walk out and she'll be doing her little prance around the yard and you just just have to stop and smile at her like it's just what it is I guess just her hello I'm Hamish Cole and I'm visiting West Wyalong High School more than 450 kilometers west of Sydney where Bria is already having an impact helping students cope with stress and anxiety the school's science and agricultural teacher Julie Maslin came up with the idea of introducing a donkey to the school after watching an episode of ABC TV show Landline about a program that trains wild donkeys to work as guardian animals. She said after this region and its residents endured flood and bushfires over the past year, Bria was bringing some relief to students. We had a tough um, summer, um, or tough 12 months lately, um, for you know, floods and bushfires and just hardship in the community, and it's just really nice to... Um, for, for students of all ages to come out and have a bit of relief, whether it's Year 12 students that just need a bit of a brain break through to kids that just need a general break from the hardships from home and even the classroom and just to be able to come out and, and spend some time, the tactile feeling of, of brushing the donkey, running the hand through its hair and just being around Bria has just been amazing. It's been pretty hard for them to be able to concentrate, to be able to, I guess, be themselves. There's pressures at home from their parents. Just the family life has quite, been quite difficult for them. It's like even teachers, just you know, trying to comfort these kids and, and give them the, the best opportunities and, um, and teaching environment. But having something like um, an animal like Bria has just been making that job a bit easier. It has brought a smile to both the students and the teachers. As we just experiencing now, she's come over to us, but she does love human interaction. She wants to know what's going on. As we're speaking now, we're giving her a scratch, which is really cute. But she's like a big dog. She's she's soft to touch and she's quite funny. I don't know something about a donkey that makes you laugh. Um, <laughs> you think of the you know Shrek movie and and donkey and the the big ears they have. They're a, a great animal to have around, and they've got such character. I feel like it's such a privilege to have what I'd probably call an unusual animal at the school. To be able to see the, the kids' faces, the enjoyment they get out of being around the donkey and patting it, I feel it's quite a privilege and a great opportunity for us all. Ricky Bishop is the school's student support officer. She says Bria is helping all of the kids with their mental health and studies. She is also just a benefit to all the students, like including our learning hub guys that can, um, so students with special needs and disabilities and things and behaviour issues, we can, they come in here and they just like change a level. They shift a gear 
their mannerism, just the way they are, and all of a sudden, before they know it, they're standing there patting or brushing her, and she's no issue. She doesn't stress them out. She brings everyone sort of calm. It's really special. It's got a lot of students that do struggle maybe socially with friends or um, home's pretty tough, or it's just a nice little breakaway from the usual. This has resulted in more pupils seeking support. Well, she's just a gentle creature that doesn't judge, that doesn't have... Um, doesn't really care what your smell look like or what mood you're in because once you get near her she'll just distract you I guess a good sort of segue into let's talk about something else or let's focus on something else yeah she, I think she's been a bit of a surprise for everyone really at the whole point of a donkey but um, once they get in and meet her then it's like she's awesome like she's just um like look at her she's just so chill <laughs> she's so chill but she does have her playful moments too so everyone's getting used to her so she does have a little gallop and the couple of times she's done that now she's feeling more comfortable it's like whoa but everyone just stands still and she'll she'll do a little trot around you and then go off have a drink and then come back and ready for another pat sort of thing students can come and say can we have a chat and I'm just more often than normal at the moment just grabbing my keys saying let's go out and see Bray and they're all on board. So yeah, I get a lot more visitors lately. <laughs> this has meant the kids cannot get enough of the donkey. The students who meet Bria often go home and say, can I have a donkey <laughs> for, a, for a pet? So yeah, it, it's kicked off quite well. We've got students saying, we need two donkeys. We need three donkeys. We need four donkeys. <laughs> Ricky Bishop, the Student Support Officer at West Wyalong High School in Central West New South Wales, where Bria the Donkey is helping both students and staff cope with anxiety and stress. She was speaking with reporter Hamish Cole. Before that, Vanessa Milton reported from an Aboriginal cultural camp at Mystery Bay on the New South Wales south coast. And you'll find more on both of those stories on the RN homepage, abc.net.au slash rn. Then look for A Big Country under the programs. I'm Clint Jasper with you for a big country on RN. Still to come, we'll meet the arborist getting artistic with his chainsaw and we'll visit Kakadu National Park where rangers and traditional owners have been busy burning country over the past few weeks. Max Rowley caught up with him to find out why. It's a cloudy morning at the southern end of Kakadu National Park and amongst the green wet season growth, rangers are starting to light fires. Uh, yes, so this is one of our fire breaks uh, that we use to protect the ranger station and we're using wet season burning because this particular area had a lot of hot fires go through it. That's senior ranger and traditional owner Joe Markham. Uh, so it was sparse and the fires weren't continuing through so we've saved the fuel and now we're going to use the wet season burn to, to reduce it and protect our assets. Yeah, how do you tell from an area whether it's right for wet season burning? Uh, basically, you look for the green and you look for the brown. The brown is the cured grass, so that's actually what you're burning, or what, you, what the fuel is, and that'll, that'll kill the green, which is the grass. So you're kind of looking for the, the old growth, the understory? Yeah, so the old growth, we're lighting that and we're using that to reduce fuel loads. Looking at some of this area at the moment, it's pretty green. Um, uh, I'm surprised that it's burning so well. Uh, yeah, it's, um, like I say, you just, you're burning that old growth, not the green one, and the green one dies off in the heat. Um, you can see on the opposite side of the road that, that that was lit in the dry season and there's less of a fuel load. You don't see that brown spear grass in there. 
Whereas on this side, you, you do see it, and that's what we're burning today. So if you tried to burn here, for instance, on the other side of the road? It probably wouldn't light now because there's actually nothing. This leaf, bit of leaf litter would light, but you wouldn't, it'd go out as soon as it went into the green stuff because there's no brown stuff. And what's the benefit of, of burning at the moment? Reducing the fuel is the name of the game, but it's also low-intensity fires to protect our little animals, um, the possums in there, the bush rat. We've got sugar gliders in these big hollow logs. So with a low-intensity fire, we're also um, we're not burning their homes and we're not killing the trees that they live off, you know. So out of the area that we burn early in the dry season, that's about 35% uh, of the park and then about 5% maybe. 4 or 5% might be wet season burning. Anna Pickworth is the fire management officer for Kakadu National Park. It's something that... Over the years, if you do really good early dry season burning and wet season burning, you can bring in much more diversity into the uh, landscape, much more barriers to fire. And so as we do this more and more each year, those kind of percentages might change around a bit. So as the country um, becomes less flammable in general over time, uh, then we may be able to burn less of the park each year. She says wet season burning is about removing speargrass before it seeds. If there's areas of speargrass, particularly that didn't burn the previous year, um, then there's a whole lot of dry old grass there and you can use that old grass to put a fire through the new grass when it's coming up. Um, that then kills the, the new speargrass and so that speargrass doesn't seed and then it just knocks speargrass out of that whole area. So it kind of has the result of reducing a lot of the grass in the country and that can give the country a bit of a break from fire and it can give uh, plants a chance to, to grow up a bit bigger or just to ha have a break from fire and from other things uh, to grow other than spear grass. How effective has it been for Kakadu? I think it's a, it's a really effective tool. Um, there's much more perennial grasses in there. There's much more diversity um, in the type of plants that are coming up. So, yeah, it's a, it's a really good thing for country. My name is Basik Holman and I'm Wurukwaba clan group. And what are you doing today? Walking with new generation, watching them burning grass, and they got the skill, I got the knowledge. I'm watching them. And you were just speaking in language. What, yeah. what were you saying? Today they burn the grass. I asked the old people, our ancestors, we're cleaning up the grass, keeping nice and clean. And why is it important to, to burn country? Because we've been doing from generation to generation, from our ancestors. We learn from our ancestors and my parents, my mother passed it down to me. I'm passing it down to my granddaughters and grandson. They clean up so new growth can come and people can go hunting, looking for bush food. Just looking at so not hot fire. It's going to be cool fire. They do bits and fire break, you know, they get fire break all the time. And we've been doing it this for a long time with the ranger staff and the traditional owner. I do a lot of helicopter fly. I burn from the air and I burn on the ground too. And how is this fire burning today? It's really good and I'm happy. And I like the smell of the smoke. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
In his home workshop in far north Queensland, arborist Michael Watson is using his chainsaw skills in a more artistic way. I've been an arborist for almost 15 years. I haven't done much woodworking, so to speak, but I've just started now carving with the chainsaw, trying to use my skills for something different. I found him when I was looking online, started seeing all these carvings and just thought, yeah, I'd be able to give it a go. Pretty good with the chainsaw. I'm not very good at art, so I was, yeah, a bit reluctant to start, but then sort of slowly coming together. Hello, I'm Amanda Cranston. I'm watching Michael at work with his chainsaw and I'm admiring some of his finished pieces. There's a collection of amazing lifelike faces. They look a little like old men or wizards and their features have been expertly carved into dried out logs. So how does he do it? So at the initial start you start with a chainsaw, it's called blocking out and you get sort of like the rough facial features done and most of the bulk of the wood cut out. And then as you finish with that, you start working down the tools. So I might use a grinder or a die grinder and then slowly down to chisels or maybe a dremel. Each wood has its own characteristics and properties in the sense of some wood, like hardwoods, will hold their detail. So that way you can do more finer carving. With some softwoods, you try to do detail and it'll just rip out and tear and ends up being really hard to work with. But I would say I'm liking eucalyptus, so the hardwoods. It is a bit harder to work with your chainsaw, but it's, yeah, you get a lot better detail in it. So I started with faces, especially like the old wood spirits, they call them, because you don't have to get the proportions right. So it's very good for beginners in the sense of you can have a bigger nose or a wavy face. It doesn't have to be perfect. Whereas you want to do more realistic carvings like the animals and the birds and stuff like that, then you have to really know your proportions and get everything exact, otherwise it just looks funny. Chainsaws aren't an easy tool to use. I know you said you use it for work, but how do you find it for doing something more intricate rather than just cutting down trees to use it as a tool for something like this? For me, a, a chainsaw is just kind of like an extended hand, so I mean, I like the idea of it. It's something that not many people can do. It's just something unique and different. Well, I'd love you to come and show me how you do the carving. So we've come around to the back garden where you've got a big block of wood ready. You've made a little bit of carving of the face and this is obviously where the chainsaw work happens. Yeah, so I keep it half in the garden so it adds into the mulch. You're going to be using one of these chainsaws? Yep, so I've got a steel battery chainsaw with just the standard stock bar on it. I try to use a lot of battery saws in my backyard just because of the neighbours. I don't think they would like too much chainsaw blaring the whole time. And I see you've got a permanent marker here. Yeah, I'll do like a rough outline of where I want the eyes and the nose and the moustache. It's not a very detailed drawing, it's literally just a few lines. As I start carving I don't really have any idea of where I'm going besides just the moustache shape and where the eyes are and the nose are and how big I want the nose and the rest, the detail of how the face is just sort of naturally comes. Can I watch you at work? Yeah, that's fine. So what kind of wood is this one that you're carving on? So this is swamp mahogany. It's relatively hard wood, native to the area. So you generally would coat this to protect it? Yeah, so once I've sort of finished, then I'll burn it first with a blowtorch. That highlights the features, but when you burn wood, it gives it that extra protection to the outdoor elements. I like to use the natural look of the wood. The burning gives it the highlights and the depth. And then yeah, once you coat it, the oils, like the shadows, will highlight itself. Normally like an outdoor oil, sort of like a decking oil. How long ago did you start this one? 
Uh, it was probably about a rushed 15 minutes before you got here. <laughs> You've done amazing. And so how much longer will you probably put into this one? Maybe another one or two hours. Yeah. It really depends. The big issue I have sometimes, I'll find rotten spots. Then I get a big hole there and then you have to re-carve it to fit in. Most times probably about another hour or two, depending how much detail. If I want to put really fine hairs in there, then you know that's going to take longer or I could just leave it like that. So this will be just purely done with the chainsaw and the wood burning tool? I'll probably smooth it out a bit with the die grinder and just put some more features in there, yeah. The eyes are the hardest part. I mean, you do everything else really nicely and then you get to the eyes and that's a really hard thing to do to get them perfect. And so I am practicing eyes slowly and surely. Arborist and chainsaw artist Michael Watson. He was speaking to reporter Amanda Cranston from his home in far north Queensland. For more on that story and all of the stories you've heard on today's program, visit the Big Country program page on the RN website. You'll find it at abc.net.au slash rn. That's the show for today. I'm Clint Jasper and I'll talk to you again next week. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.